Thanks, John. Lovely. Good morning. Welcome to you all. Uh, if we've not met yet, I'm Nathaniel. I'm one of the leaders here at Gateway. It's my pleasure to be able to speak to you this morning. You might need a Bible, so if you've got one, great. If not, there's plenty around. If you've got one, please do stick a finger in 1 Samuel. That's where we are today. Now, I don't know about you, but um, one of the things I love most about living where we live is uh, that the great outdoors. I would say that as a family, one of our happy places is the Purbex. We love getting out into the Purbex, going exploring Arne and the RSPB Nature Reserve, going and having a look at those white sandy beaches of uh, Studland and exploring all of the, uh, all of the, the, the land that is there as well. Uh, we also love going and exploring all those old little villages that you can find dotted around the Purbex. And there's this one point that is perhaps our favourite when we go exploring the Purbex, and it's the viewpoint on that big road out towards Studland. And many of you will have been there, but basically, get to Corfe Castle, turn left, you're there, and you've got this big long winding road, and you've got to watch out for cyclists as you try and drive the way up. And as you get up onto the top of the hill, there's this beautiful view. There's this stopping point where you can stop and look over the whole of the Purbex, and you can see Poole, and you can see Bournemouth, and you can see this beautiful landscape. Often it starts arguments because the ice cream van's always parked there, and so we always have that family argument about whether we can have an ice cream or not. I normally lose. We don't have an ice cream. But we're there, we're seeing this beautiful landscape, and what I want to let you know about as we're going through our preaching series is that's a little bit like what we're doing this morning. We are taking this big viewpoint look at the Old Testament, and it means that we're going quite quickly through the Old Testament, through a lot of stories. And actually, often when we stand up and we preach, we're going into books of the Bible and going week by week, chapter by chapter. And that's a little bit like what we do when we go exploring around the Purbex, exploring different regions and getting to know it. And actually, what we're doing this morning is we're on the viewpoint. And we're looking across the whole Bible story to try and get a bigger picture of what's going on. So we're going quite quickly through this series. And uh, if you've been with us so far, we've gone from Genesis right the way up to where we are today in 1 Samuel. But we're doing it, we're doing it purposefully because there's something about being on that viewpoint in the Perbex and looking out that gives you a greater appreciation for all of those little bits that you can then go and explore. And that's our hope for when we're opening the Bible week after week and going quickly through this big picture story of the Old Testament. We want to give you this appreciation so that when we dive into these books, you understand how it fits to that bigger story and you can see the beauty in it. So that's what's going on as we go through our uh, preaching series, A House for My Name. It's based on a book here by a chap called Peter Lightheart of the same name. You can buy that and read along uh, with us week by week if you want any more information on it uh, as well. And we've reached... 1 Samuel. So far we've seen God create the earth and set a people, uh, set apart a people for himself in it, the Israelites. And he's been saving them, rescuing them from Egypt and providing instruction on how they can live right with him. He dwells among them in the tabernacle and that's overseen by the priests. And as we were going through Leviticus, we saw those instructions for the priests and how the people should live. And these priests are supposed to be set apart to help the people worship and stay in right relationship with God. And we've seen over the last couple of weeks how the Israelites continually fail to live by God's standards, often choosing their own way rather than God's and compromising and adopting some of the practices of the people around them. And in the worst cases, adopting some of the gods of the cultures around them. And this compromise isn't good. And though through the book of Judges, we saw these uh, judges, good and bad, who were trying to lead Israel, the book of Judges ends in chapter 21 and verse 25 by saying, in those days, Israel had no king and everyone did as he saw fit. 
In those days, Israel had no king, and everyone did as he saw fit. And then last week in Ruth, we saw that there's still hope, and that God's plan is still being outworked. And we're back now in this big story. Israel's a mess. That's the the context here. They've lost their way. They're not living by the standards set for them by God. It's full of compromise, and uh, everybody's acting, doing as they saw fit, like the end of Judges tells us. They're not following God. They're following their own desires. It's not going well. And when preaching through Judges, Matt made this observation. He said, actually, we haven't really heard a lot about the priests in this period. Where are the priests in this part of the story? We read through Judges, and we're not really reading very much about them. And that's largely because they're not really doing very much, and that's part of the problem. Okay? And that's where we pick up the story today in the book of 1 Samuel with these priests. We find out a little bit more about what they're doing. We're introduced to a number of new characters, not least Samuel, but that'll be no surprise to you, seeing as the book's named after him. But we're looking at the passage that records Samuel's early life in Samuel 1, uh, 1 Samuel 1 to 3 is where we're going to be today. And I'm going to take you through all three chapters, but I'm doing it deliberately in the wrong order um, because I want you to see the big picture story here. And to do that, we want to in- I want to introduce these characters in a slightly different way. But by the time we get to the end, we'll have covered all three, okay? So don't worry. And with that in mind, I actually want to start in chapter 2 with Eli. Eli is the chief priest at this time, and his sons, the priests Hophni and Phinehas. Like I said, Eli is this chief priest in Israel, and by all accounts, he's not a bad guy, actually. And as you read through the beginning of 1 Samuel, you'll read, you know, he seems to, to know God. And as we read this morning, even though he's fairly in step with God, he's got this one big Achilles heel in his faith, and that's the blind spot that he's got when it comes to his sons. So I want to start in 1 Samuel 2, verse 12, and I'm going to read down to verse 17. It says this, Eli's sons were scoundrels. Love that word, scoundrels. They had no regard for the Lord. Now it was the practice of the priests that whenever any of the people offered a sacrifice, the priest's servant would come with a three-pronged fork in his hand while the meat was being boiled and would plunge the fork into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. Whatever the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is how they treated all the Israelites who came to Shiloh. But even before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say, to the person who was giving the sacrifice. Give the priest some meat to roast. He won't accept boiled meat from you, only raw. If the person said to him, let the fat be burned first and take whatever you want, the servant would answer, no, hand it over now, and if you don't, I'll take it by force. This sin of the young men was very great in the Lord's sight, for they were treating the Lord's offering with contempt. Now, we can read this bit of the story and think, well, what's going on here? It's just a bit of meat. Surely it doesn't matter if it's boiled, if it's raw, you know, what, what's going on? But like I said at the beginning, there were some very specific instructions that were given to the priests that, to, in the way that they helped people to give sacrifices to God. It was really, really important that it was done in this right way, and that's why these instructions were given. And so what we see here is these priests, Hophni and Phinehas, they're not doing what God told them to do. We can look at these kind of sins. It says they sin greatly, and we can look at, look at it, and we can miss the point. We can think, well, what's, what's wrong? What's going on here? But what they're doing is they're taking something that's God's. They're taking God's portion. When we go through those instructions in Leviticus, and they're told to do it in exactly the right way, that's purposeful, because the act of sacrificing, an act of giving, was to give to God. And these two priests here, Hophni and Phinehas, they're neglecting their duties in pursuit of self-indulgence. They want the best meat for themselves, not for God. Peter Lightheart in his book then says, they're like waiters who eat their own meals before serving the people in the restaurant. 
Or like a butler who doesn't serve his master until he's well fed. Hophni and Phinehas insult the Lord, and their insult is a very great one. Okay, so we're supposed to see that this, what they're doing, is wrong. It's bad. They're insulting God. God's established a house among his people so that he could dwell with them, and the priests were charged with administering this house and supporting the people in their worship and in their service and in their repentance and in their living like God had instructed them. And instead, these two priests were in it for themselves. The very place reserved for God was being abused for the gain of those who were supposed to be there for good. So they're supposed to be there helping, supporting the Israelites in their worship of God, and instead, they're abusing it. Hophni and Phinehas' self-indulgence actually reaches such a level that they then begin sleeping with the women who are serving in the tabernacle. They're further violating the tabernacle. This is God's home, and they are up to no good. They're scoundrels. That's what we're told. The place is reserved for holiness, and, uh, and we're told that judgment falls on the house of Eli because of the sins that were committed in the house of God. And we can pick up the story in verse 27 of chapter 2, and I'll read on, and you can see what I mean. So verse 27, now a man of God came to Eli and said to him, this is what the Lord says, did I not clearly reveal myself to your ancestor's family when they were in Egypt under Pharaoh? I chose your ancestor out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, and to wear an ephod in my presence. I also gave your ancestor's family all the food offering presented by the Israelites. Why do you scorn my sacrifice and offering that I prescribed for my dwelling? Why do you honor your sons more than me by fattening yourselves on the choice parts of every offering made by the people of Israel? Therefore, the Lord, the God of Israel, declares... I promised that members of your family would minister before me forever. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me. Those who honor me, I will honor, but those who despise me will be disdained. The time is coming when I will cut short your strength and the strength of your priestly household so that no one in it will reach old age and you will see distress in my dwelling. Although good will be done to Israel, no one in your family will ever reach old age. Every one of you that I do not cut off from serving at my altar, I will spare only to destroy your sight and sap your strength, and all your descendants will die in the prime of life. And what happens to your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, will be assigned to you. They'll both die on the same day. Oh, devastating, isn't it? What is going on here when we read words like this? How do we, what do we make of this? At the beginning, I said, though, Eli generally isn't a bad guy. He's not without sin. And he's got this this blind spot when it comes to his sons. This is his downfall. God wants our best. He doesn't just want us looking good on a Sunday morning. I've come, I've freshly shaved for you all this morning, so I hope you appreciate that. But actually, to God, it doesn't particularly matter if I shave or not. What God's interested in is the heart. He wants my best. He doesn't just want my Sunday best when I come and stand here. He doesn't want my best except for this little part of my life, which I'm actually not quite willing to give. That's what was going on with Eli. God, I'm happy to live for you, but actually, I really care about my sons a little bit more. He wants us. He wants all of us. So, For Eli, his sons were at the ultimate center of his heart and their sins reflected on the whole family and God's judged them for it. They have been abusing the house of God. They have been doing, uh, they've been going against God's instructions and actually God is is bringing judgment on the house for it. Emma and I moved down to Manchester, uh, from Manchester about 11 years ago to come live back here in Dorset, came and joined this church then about 11 years ago. And uh, when we were living in Manchester, I was volunteering for a charity up there And this charity helped to get people out of debt. 
and basically we'd take people who were in real trouble, who were in dire straits, who were, uh, who, whose finances were just totally out of control and, and they were being drowned by it, and we'd step in to help them out. And it was this, this beautiful thing that we'd be able to do. We'd go into people's homes and they'd have this stack of bills, these, these payments that had got on top of them, red letter after red letter, and we'd be able to take them and say, leave it with us, we're going to help you. You know, it was a, a, a real pleasure to be able to do. And I remember... There was this one visit we conducted to, to uh, a person, uh, went to their house, went, uh, uh, and normally what we'd do is we'd go into somebody's house, sit down at their kitchen table. But the second that we walked into the house, the first thing that hit us was this massive TV on the wall. And I mean, this TV was the size of the wall. It literally was massive. Like you'd get whiplash watching the tennis. You, could, you, you, you couldn't focus on the whole screen at once. It was, this TV was so, so big. It was like cinema big. So we sit down and we're talking and we're listening to this person's story and they're talking about how much trouble they're in financially and all the debt that they're in. And then we say, okay, well, don't worry, we're here to help you. And we're going through a few items and we say, look, I mean, tell me one thing that would really help you. Let's, let's get that TV sold. It's a you know, really big TV. We will give you a free TV. Won't be that big, but we'll give you a TV. You can still watch TV, but let's get this thing sold. Do you know what he said? Get out. Get out of my house. We were kicked out there and then. How dare we even suggest the TV got solved? That was one step too far. The person was in so much trouble financially, but it it soon became really obvious what was really ruling the decision-making in that house. And it's a really physical example. And it's easy to look at these passages of Scripture and think that Hophni and Phinehas are stupid. I mean, come on, guys, it's so obvious. You were given the instruction, just just do what you're told. It's going to be fine. And actually... What I believe is there's a warning for us here as well. When we sin, we effectively become Hophni and Phinehas. What we do is we turn from what's good, we turn from what God instructs, and and when we do that, we therefore turn from God. And when we turn from God, we turn towards ourselves, towards self-indulgence. We turn towards those things that we think ultimately are going to make us happier, those things that are going to make our lives a little bit better. In the case of Eli, those things might actually be good things to start off with children and houses and televisions and things that we think will enrich our lives, but actually if we're not careful, they can take the place that, in our heart that's ultimately reserved for God. And that's not good. We become our own gods, dining on what makes us happy, the same way that Hophni and Phinehas were dining on those choice meats, what made them happy. And ultimately, we can't be God, and those temporary pleasures, they fail. We get in trouble. And I want to say, today's the day to set those things aside, even if those things are good, because they're not God, and tell God that you're all in it for him again. If, as I've been talking there, heartstrings are pulling for you because you're thinking, actually, there is something that I wouldn't be willing to give up for God, then don't leave this morning without telling God that you want him to be your all and that you want to be all in for him. So like Matt said a couple of weeks ago, the priests in this period of Israel's history were pretty much not up to much good. That's what was going on. But all of that was was about to change. And today's verses are verses of contrast. On the one hand, we've got the wickedness of the people there that's personified through Hophni and Phinehas. We see actually things are not going well. There's chaos. There's no king. Everyone did what they saw fit. And that even included the priests who were doing what they saw fit, dining off the choice meats that they weren't supposed to be. But on the other hand now, we see that God is still faithful and he's always making a way to build his house. He's always got a plan. Even in the midst of this prophecy about the house of Eli where, where they're saying that, that 
um, effectively destruction will fall on the house of Eli, we're told that good things are going to happen for Israel. There's still a plan in the midst of this story. So remember the big picture here. God's got God's plans and purposes to permanently restore a people to himself is the, is the big picture. And it's so encouraging to see that these plans can't be dis, de, derailed by the Hophnes and Phineases of the world. Isn't, it? Isn't that encouraging that actually the plans and purposes of God can't be derailed by Hophni and Phineas? And that's where we come to introduce Samuel into, her, into this story and to his mum, Hannah. And the context at the beginning of 1 Samuel, if you want to flick back a page in your Bibles, is that Hannah's unable to have children. The beginning of the book of Samuel says that God closed her womb. She literally wasn't able to have children. And I'll start reading from halfway through verse 9 of 1 Samuel chapter 1, where it says, Now Eli the priest was sitting on his chair by the doorstep of the Lord's house. In her deep anguish, Hannah prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly. And she made a vow saying, Lord Almighty, if you will only look on your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life and no razor will ever be used on his head. As she kept on praying to the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was praying in her heart and her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. Eli thought she was drunk and said to her, how long are you going to stay drunk? Put away your wine. As a quick aside here, by the way, I do think we should be praying a little bit crazier than we are at the moment, right? What you're seeing here is Hannah is crying out to God. She knows that God's the only one who can redeem this situation. And she's, praising, she's praying so crazily that uh, she's mistaken for drunk. So uh, there's a challenge to you all there. You need to be a little bit crazier when you pray, okay? Let me carry on. Not so, my Lord, Hannah replied. I'm a woman who's deeply troubled. I've not been drinking wine or beer. I was pouring my soul out to the Lord. Oh, how beautiful is that? That's how to pray. Pour your soul out to the Lord. He's the one who can intervene. Do not take your servant for a wicked woman. I've been praying here out of my great anguish and grief. Eli answered, go in peace and may the God of Israel grant you what you've asked of him. She said, may your servant find favor in your eyes. Then she went her way and ate something. Her face was no longer downcast. Early the next morning, they arose and worshiped before the Lord. And they went back to their home in Ramah. Elkanah, that's Hannah's husband, made love to his wife Hannah, and the Lord remembered her. So in the course of time, Hannah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel, saying, because I asked the Lord for him. Hannah cries out to God from her very soul, so much so that she's mistaken for being drunk. And God remembers her, and God answers her prayers. Like so many great men of the Bible, Samuel's birth is special, miraculous, God-given. And how comforting is it to know that we've got a God who listens to us? I love that, that moment in the story where actually Hannah's cries are heartfelt. She's in grief and anguish, and she pours out her soul to the Lord. And what does God do? He doesn't say, there, there. He listens. He listens. We've got a God who listens to our prayers, and it's beautiful. Hannah's so comforted that there's actually a passage in 1 Samuel 2 that I wish we could spend all morning talking about. And when I go back to our, the story I told at the very beginning, of us sat on the Purbex looking at this uh, bird's eye view across the Purbex and looking at the whole land to get this big picture story. There are some elements that right now we can't dive into, but I would love to dive more into this story. Uh, Hannah's prayer, catalogued here 
in 1 Samuel 2. So if you've got some time later and you want to have a read, go and have a read. Go and explore like I'd go and explore one of those bits of the Perbex uh, and read more. But she talks in this beautiful prayer to God, this God who's just answered her prayer, who's given her the son that she cried out for. And she says, there's no one holy like the Lord. There's no one beside you. There's no rock like our God. She's so thankful. She loves God. She's praising Like I said, I think we need to be a little bit crazier when we pray and praise. So she cries a part of her prayer that she delights in the one who hears her prayers. Like we've been reminded through this preaching series, I also love how these scriptures talk about the faithfulness of good women and the role that they play in God's story. That's true of Hannah here. As God was faithful to Hannah, so Hannah was faithful to the promise that she made when she was crying out to God. And Samuel was given to the Lord for his whole life. And he actually ends up serving the Lord for his whole life. What we see through the first three chapters of Samuel uh, is that this isn't a coincidence either. We're supposed to see the contrast that I've been painting this morning. We're supposed to see on the one hand, we've got Eli and Hophni and Phinehas. Hophni and Phinehas, those sons were contemptible. They were deliberately dishonoring the roles they were given for their own gain. And God knew it. And the God of time and eternity, he, he knows, he always knows. And he always, always is about making a plan to restore a people for himself. So he raises up Samuel, and as Peter Lightheart puts it in his book, he raises him up as a priest and prophet and judge to prepare the way for the coming of a new order of things. And it's quite important to see that in our big picture story. If we're stood on the viewpoint looking at at the whole story of the Bible, actually Samuel and his introduction here marks the next gear change in God's big story. Imagine you're driving up onto the motorway and you're on the slip road and you're going from 30 miles an hour to 60 miles an hour. There's a big crunching gear change. Crunch, in comes Samuel. That's what's going on here as uh, we're transitioning between one part of the story to the next. And if you know your Bible, what you'll know is that following Samuel is the books of Kings. And what we're seeing here is this transitionary period between Israel's judges and Israel's kings. And Samuel's actually the last judge. And he's not going to lead the people through military might like some of the judges that we, uh, that we might see, but actually through spiritual authority. He's the leader that they need in this moment. He's got spiritual authority. Bible commentator Nick Page called Samuel the man used by God to establish kingship in Israel. Samuel was a kingmaker, a prophet who not only anointed both Saul and David, but was also responsible for defining the new structure of the kingdom. So what we see here is the contrast in this passage between the growth of Samuel and the demise of the house of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas. Samuel, the adopted son, he serves God well. Hophni and Phinehas only serve themselves. Samuel grows in God and he grows in his reputation in Israel. Hophni and Phinehas grow in wickedness and their reputation plummets. We need to see that two sides of the story here, what's going on. And so Hannah gives Samuel to the Lord as promised and he goes to minister under Eli. And it's here we find a very well-known part of Scripture where God calls Samuel. And actually, if you turn now to Samuel chapter 3, where we're going to end our story today, what you'll find is the first verses say, In those days, the word of the Lord was rare. There were not many visions. Some other translations say, In those days, the Lord hardly spoke. Actually, you can see that in the way that people acted, can't you? Let me keep reading through 1 Samuel 3. One night, Eli, whose eyes were becoming so weak that he could barely see, was lying down in the usual place. The lamp of God had not yet gone out, and Samuel was lying down in the house of the Lord where the ark of God was. Then the Lord called Samuel. Samuel answered, Here I am. 
And he ran to Eli and said, here I am, you called me. But Eli said, I didn't call you, go back and lie down. So he went and lay down. Again, the Lord called Samuel. And Samuel got up and went to Eli and said, here I am, you called me. My son Eli said, I did not call you, go back and lie down. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord. The word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. A third time the Lord called Samuel. And Samuel got up and went to Eli and said, what? Here I am, you called me. Then Eli realized that the Lord was calling the boy. So Eli told Samuel, go and lie down. And if he calls you, say, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. The Lord came and stood there calling as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. Then Samuel said, speak, for your servant is listening. And the Lord said to Samuel, see, I'm about to do something in Israel that will make the ears of everyone who hears about it tingle. Ah! How about that? How cool is that? Something that's going to make the ears of the people who hear it tingle. I'm listening. I hope you are too. After this, the Lord then goes on to tell Samuel that everything that he had said about the house of Eli was going to come to pass. So what's going on now? We're at an important point in Scripture here because, as we saw, actually we're in a a period where there was no king. Everyone did what they saw as they saw fit. God wasn't speaking very much. And we see Samuel here as the one who will be faithful to God's call. And we'll see Samuel as the one that God does speak to. And he speaks to him a lot. Samuel's special. He's the prophet who will tell the people God's will because he hears when God speaks. And here we're at the very beginning of that story. God speaks, Samuel listens. And Samuel's going to mark this gear change in the story because he's the one that hears God and tells the people God's will. So, as a part of our preaching series, A House for My Name, how's God's house being built here? Well, he's going to do it through Samuel. We come to the point in the Bible where the story looks hopeless. It's filled with Hophnes and Phinehases, and everyone's doing what they want, and they're compromising, and they're not following God. But what we need to see is that even here, God is about a bigger work God is about his big rescue story. He's got a plan. He's always got a plan. And his plans and purposes won't be derailed. So a bit of a spoiler alert for you, I'm afraid, because for the Israelites, we're going to see this big change as Samuel helps uh, transition Israel to the next phase of God's plan. And you're going to have to come back if you want to hear more about that, okay? So that's an incentive for you to come back in future weeks. But what I want you to see is like a master chess player, God's already setting up the board for a win. If you don't know very much about chess, you might see the board and think, well, what's going on here? It doesn't look good. But actually, God's about a bigger plan than what we can see. So what might look like a big loss is a part of God's bigger plan to restore a people for himself. And this big change is coming for Israel, a period of kings and not judges. And here we see the foundations being laid for the next big chapter of Israel's story. And what does that mean for us? I think there's two things. Firstly, I think this story can give us hope. I'm sure I'm not alone when I turn on the TV in the morning or pick up a newspaper, listening to the radio on the way into work, and it's full of global pandemics and government arguments and rising tensions and rising house costs and rising electricity, and you can, you can pick up a newspaper and you can think, oh, it all just feels a little bit hopeless, doesn't it? I mean, everyone's doing as they saw fit. God, where are you in all this? Like, actually, it just can feel a bit hopeless. But when we see the big picture of God's story, we can have hope that his plans, God's plans, don't get derailed by the plans of man. 
There's no situation that God isn't in control of, working for his plans and purposes. And my hope is that as we've gone through this story and we read about the Hophneys and the Phineases and think that it's all a bit wrong and what's going on, actually, we can look and we can see that there's hope because God's plans and purposes will come to pass. In the midst of personal crisis or global chaos, God is always in control. And ultimately, we know, don't we, that this victory has already been won by Jesus. God's plan to restore a people for himself gets fulfilled through Jesus. And we can see Jesus in this passage in Samuel today, just in the same way that God miraculously brought a son to Hannah, we see in the New Testament a miraculous God-given child born to Mary, just like it was prophesied in the Bible. The baby grew and lived on earth and lived this perfect life, giving glory to his Father in heaven, and was crucified, taking the punishment for all we've done wrong. All those Hophni and Phineas moments where we've preferred ourselves rather than preferring God, Actually, God's made a plan through Jesus for us to be restored to him. All those things that we've done wrong get replaced with Jesus' perfect righteousness instead. In death, it all looked hopeless, but Jesus rises to defeat sin and death, fulfilling God's plan, and then King Jesus takes his permanent place on the throne. And it's a place that can never, ever be taken away from him. He'll never be dethroned. So for those of us who believe in Jesus, we become members of God's family. We get this eternal inheritance. We don't deserve this inheritance, but it's God's gracious gift to us. But his rescue story gets fulfilled in Jesus, and those who believe in Jesus can dwell in the house of the Lord forever. If you don't know Jesus personally, then you can become a member of this household today as well, and I'd love for you to come find me at the end. I'd love to be able to talk to you more about that. We're going to come back and worship again in a moment, but before we do, I just want to give you two quick reminders. As we've looked at this story today of Samuel and of Hophni and of Phineas and seen actually those two different ways that it could go, I want to ask if there's any area of your life that's taken the place of God in your heart. Is there anything that, as we've been speaking, you've thought, actually, there's this one part of my life that I don't want to give over to God. There's this, I just, I'm not, I can't do it. I'm not ready. Where's your blind spot? Today's the day to turn back around and tell God that you're all in for him. The story of Samuel is a reminder that God values character more than skill. He doesn't want me here, fresh-faced this morning, uh, ready and stood in front of you. God cares about my heart and what's going on inside. He doesn't want my best efforts. He doesn't want our best efforts. He wants us, all of us, living for him and learning to be more like him. And if you feel like you can't say that yet this morning, then know this. Jesus has paid the price for our wrongdoing. So come to Jesus again today and ask for forgiveness if your pattern of life is more self-focused than God-focused. As we come back to worship, ask for grace and forgiveness and tell God that you want to be a part of his story. Second reminder I want to give you is that as God spoke to Samuel, it's our belief that God speaks to us today as well. And I want to be, I encourage you all to be receptive to what God might be saying to you as we come back to worship, what he might be calling you to do. I personally would love to have more of those moments where God speaks and my ears tingle, like the passage said, but actually God speaks in the big and in the small. By way of quick testimony, uh, like I said, before coming, living back down here and coming to Gateway, we were living in Manchester, 
And uh, I'd done journalism at university, and it was my dream to be a journalist. It's what I wanted to do, to work in the media. And I was just starting to make inroads into, into journalism. I'd started working for a few media outlets, and I was writing some stories, and things were going quite well. And I was thinking, OK, this dream could be coming true. I might, have, you know, I might be making it. This is, isn't this exciting? And at the same time, Emma had just graduated as a dentist, and uh, she'd got her first job in dentistry. And the job was in Swanage. Swanage, the place where journalism goes to die. That's where, that's where she'd found her first job in dentistry, okay? And so in my head, I'm thinking, well, well what are we going to do about this? Like, everything in my head's telling me Swanage isn't the place to go if, we're gonna, if I want to have a career in journalism. I need to stay in Manchester or go to London or, you know, I need to be somewhere big. Where, that's where all the, the media is. And we were really, really torn because at the same time, of course, we want Emma to have this amazing career that she studied for. And, you know, her first steps in this, in this career were really important. We're genuinely torn. What do we do? Do we prefer one career or the other career? Where do we go? What, what do we do next? And so one night we were at a, a church service, not too dissimilar to this one, I suppose. And somebody came up to us and said, I think I've got a word for you. I think, I think God's spoken to me. I've got something for you. And this word essentially was that it just it wasn't about a job. It wasn't about Emma's job, but that in moving, God had a bigger plan for our life. God was about something bigger than what we could see. Uh, and so armed with that word that we felt actually, yeah, is from God, 11 years ago, we moved from Manchester and moved here and settled in this church. And here I am stood talking to you all this morning, and that's an absolute pleasure to do. And uh, my career's gone very well, and that's good as well, but actually... Far more importantly than that, I can share testimony that God's been faithful to us. And actually, it doesn't really matter about the job, and it doesn't really matter if I'm stood here or not stood here. What does matter is that God's been faithful to us, and I'm so, so grateful for that. And actually, I, I, I say that to encourage you that God speaks today, and our role is to be willing to listen to it and to respond when he does. Our God is a good God. He has got a big plan, and we, by God's grace, get to play a part in it but we've just got to be willing to listen to his call. We've got a microphone available in uh, each meeting, and it's here uh, as a, by way of encouragement for anyone who feels like they might have heard from God to be able to come and encourage us as well. So if you feel like you've been hearing from God this morning and you want to share, come find John at the end. This year, we also believe that God's spoken to us as a church and is calling us to new adventures of faith. If you've been around Gateway for a while, you'll know that over the last few years, we've tended to theme our years and theme it based on what we feel God's saying to us. And we uh, have really felt God saying that this is a year for new adventures of faith. And it's quite easy to see that in a very physical way. You can go up to Alder Road and have a look at uh, the building being the old building um, in the car park being demolished and a new building taking its place. And that's all a big adventure. And we're all here in one building for the next uh, few months. And that's one big adventure. But actually, we want to believe that God's calling us to even more than that as well. Okay. And we want to be prayerful that these new adventures of faith will lead us to breaking new ground for his kingdom. We want to believe that we'll hear God call us more individually and corporately. So I encourage you all to pray and ask what adventures of faith he might be calling you towards this year. And why not be ready to answer God's call by saying, I'm listening, I'm ready, I'm here. Another wonderful element of this gospel story is that we get to play our part in it. The church, Gateway Church, the people of God are a part of God's plan for this world as we tell the good news about who Jesus is to those around us, as we share the good news of his gospel. If you call yourself a Christian, then you're also charged with playing your part this morning, okay? You can play your part in the big story, in God's big plan. 
telling others about Jesus and being all in for him. So as we come back to worship, uh, why not ask God what he's calling you to again today? Ask him to make it less self-focused and more God-focused, what he might be calling you to. Why don't you stand? We'll invite the band back. Let me pray for us and we'll come back and sing again. Lord, I do want to thank you for your goodness and your grace. I thank you that even through stories like this, we can see that you're about a bigger work. Your plans and purposes don't get derailed by the plans of men. Lord, we just want to pray and say sorry for where we've got it wrong. Sorry for where we've preferred self to preferring you. We want to say, God, that we're all in for you this morning. I pray you'd speak to us, Lord, that you'd call us and that you'd use us for your plans and purposes. And when you do call us, Lord, I pray that we'd be receptive and that we'd be listening and that we'd be willing to say, your servant's listening. Lord, I do want to I thank you again for your goodness and your faithfulness to us. Thank you, Lord, that you do speak. Thank you, Lord, that through your son, Jesus, you have saved and rescued us and caught us up in this big plan of yours. Pray we'd be faithful to playing our part in it. In your name I pray. Amen.